Welcome to Founders Field Notes, the podcast where you can learn from founders how to become a founder. I'm founder and CEO of Klugonics Group, Jason Klug, and serial entrepreneur. This week's episode, we have John Bradshaw, fellow podcaster. It's great to connect with him, actually, because as I continue to learn and figure out how to do this podcast thing, it's great to speak with him who has a very data-driven approach to how he does podcasts. So it's cool to hear his process and how he figured out how to grow and get a lot of listens on his venture capital podcasts. So definitely worth checking that out. Uh, But also, John is a founder with a company called Codebase, which has a fantastic business model where he helps companies do headhunting in India around software development. And it's a creative uh, service offering, and he's continued to grow it dramatically and has learned a lot about building a company in another culture like I have as well with, you know, building the office in China. He's built his office in India. So check it out. John Bradshaw learned about building Codebase, how he got the idea and all the other data-driven experiments that he's done and how he's also navigated building something with a lot of cultural differences and has found his success. The VC podcast, people thought it was Scott Paul's podcast. Oh. Because he's been on it a couple times, right? Uh, we did one. Uh, we he recorded one evening, and we did three episodes. Yeah, I saw that that he was on. Or you did one last week, then you released it. I've got yeah, earlier one this more. Week. I'm trying to do two a week right now. Yeah, I did Scott I early, just because we, you know, because Scott and I have known each other for like 12 years now, so we go pretty far back. So he's an easy one to. So you got the deep stories. Record. Oh yeah, I've I've had done weird stuff with Scott, like. When I worked with, because I worked with him at Armor Active, his first company. Okay. I was his engineer. So that was like before he sold anything. So mm-hmm. he was still kind of like in the 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 trenches, I guess mm-hmm. I'd say. So it was very different back then compared to now. Now that he's had his exit and has done all of his investing and has made a name for himself as the weird crypto guy. But I remember like we go, we went to do that Corona Arch Swing down in Moab okay. together, which was a lot of fun. I did it like his dad was there. Um, a couple of our coworkers and his dad owns the momentum climbing gyms. Okay. So they had all the gear. So I felt safe because it's mm-hmm. like, you know, they're all into, they know what they're doing and they, they rigged it really well. And I just remembered like the night before, and this is when I was maybe worked for Scott for maybe like four or five months. So we're still like getting to know each other. And we ended up having to sleep in the back, just the two of us sleeping in the back of a Subaru. And it was so hot. We were like both just like laying in our underwear. Okay. And we were, we were just laughing so hard about it. And he's like, this is the beginning of like a long relationship. And it turned out to be true. Those but, are fun moments. Yeah. It's so, so funny. Um, yeah. So I'm glad we connected on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, cause your podcast was, was kept popping up on my feed on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, interesting. I should probably connect with this other podcaster. And then you messaged me like soon after I, you know, connected the dots. Yeah. And then we had some lunch. So it was great to connect and talk more about podcasts. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, how often have you done other podcasts being a podcaster? Do you do them often or is this... You know, so I have about 10 different podcasts that people don't know exist. Okay. A lot of the times when I look at a podcast, my strategy is I have a, a purpose and then I try to figure out what are the, the, the top of funnel keywords that might, you know, create a really good funnel for a business that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do like two or three pilot episodes and then I'll let it sit for six or 12 months. Mm-hmm. And then I'm looking to see which one gets traffic. So, so you have 10 of those right now going? And I want to launch like five more. Really? But the one I focus on the most is venturecapital.fm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got another one that's kind of archived. That's howtostartabusiness.com. Mm-hmm. And both of those have done yeah. really well. Like okay. they get traffic even if I take three or four months off. The way we've built it in the system, mm-hmm. it just it runs itself. So when you're doing these, are you are they more just you talking about various subject matters, or that do you always do it with a co-host? Do you always do it with a guest? Like, what is your format, or does it vary all every time? So it depends on the content. On for a podcast in general, it'll be like me recording like a, a pilot episode of like for thirty mm-hmm. seconds, and then the first episode, mm-hmm. and it's just me. And I just want to see if I have a good thumbnail and a good podcast title. Mm-hmm. Can I get traffic? Yeah. I think that's the hardest part about building a podcast that people forget is 
they record podcasts for like, you know, 90 days and they're like, where's the traffic? Right. Where I like to plant a few seeds and then I want to see, does it have potential? So when we launched the Venture Capital Podcast, I launched four others with it at the same time. Yeah. I launched Startup Investor, mm-hmm. I launched Angel Investor, and then I launched Venture Capital. And Venture Capital right out of the gate started getting traffic with the automated like marketing stuff we were doing. Yeah. And it was converting much higher than the other podcasts. And so at that point, you run your tests Mm-hmm. I then cut the, you know, you cut bait because those other podcasts still got traffic, but the venture capital podcast got significantly more traffic. Right. I mean, it's a, just more of a buzzword, I guess, or yeah, I guess it's just more interesting content. Mm-hmm. But Everybody diff- always talks and thinks about venture capital when they're studying a business. It's always like a subject matter that's on their mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's something they strive to interact with is raising money from VCs or whatever. You know, the partner you do venture capital podcast with, he is more of a VC, right? And right. Yeah. He so he is a VC. Um, his name is Peter Harris. He's, he's in his career, he's been at two different funds, the University Venture Fund mm-hmm. and then the University Growth Fund. And he's done like Spotify, Lyft, other investments like that. And so mm. the dynamic we go from this podcast is the way we want to be unique is just we're trying to be as transparent as possible in the VC space because we feel like that's not very common. And I think that's what's given us a lot of our lift. And then he brings the, the VC perspective and I bring the founder perspective. And then like we'll, we'll debate and argue on the podcast on purpose. Mm-hmm. And your company, which we'll get into more, is funded, right? Uh, no, I've only or taken bootstrap. funding once. I raised okay. a fund once. So, let's, so, so then going back, because your work history, you've, you've done like a variety of things. Mm-hmm. And then hearing about how you run your podcast where you're doing a lot of A-B testing and everything, obviously you've got a good background involving uh, like marketing analytics and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? So it looks like you were in marketing analytics back at Family Link. Mm-hmm. Is that like fresh out of college? Is that was one of like the first things you did professionally? Yeah, I feel really old when I tell the story. But when I took, when I was at BYU, I felt like the internet was going to be like big mm-hmm. and no, and BYU at the time wasn't teaching about the internet and internet marketing at all. Mm-hmm. So I asked around, I said, who was the smartest person within a hundred miles radius that knows internet marketing? And everyone talked about Paul Allen, the founder of Ancestry.com. Oh, yeah. And at okay. the time he started Family Link. So I, I didn't really care about genealogy, but I cared about being around smart people that I could really learn from. Yeah. And so that was like my first, one of the first and only jobs I've ever had. When you're at that company, were you having to figure things out or did you have then a department that was around marketing analytics? Or were you having to figure out marketing analytics kind of as a startup within a comp- startup type scenario? Yeah, I, th- I think it was Paul Allen just threw me to the wolves. Yeah. So he'd be like, hey, we need to go create a WordPress site. I know you're not a developer, but go figure it out. Yeah. Or he would ask me to, um, he's like, hey, we need to do a, oh, what's that, what's that name? What was one of the first social networks? Not dead. Facebook, MySpace. 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 He's like, we need to create a, a genealogy page on my on MySpace. Go do that. So this or, is 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. Or he'd be like, sense. John, go do link building for us. Yeah. And a lot of it, I would just go home. I would research what I could find and I'd, I'd go do it. Or he'd be like, John, we need to run an affiliate program. Yeah. Like go run the affiliate program. That's kind of similar. Well, like what I was fortunate working with Scott, where I had to like build an engineering department. Okay. And, you know, I was young. At that point, I was a college dropout that, you know, knew how to do CAD work and build stuff, you know, from a high level, but I wasn't like an experienced, trained engineer. I just knew how to use the systems and tools to do stuff. And he let me experiment and build. And I feel like that was such a valuable foundation for starting my own business. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I could see that being... They don't you teach know, you that in college. They don't teach you that. Like you have to, you have to dig and find resources to talk to and ask questions. And then if you don't do that, it comp- I mean, it prevents it from being successful. But I've met a lot of entrepreneurs that have had some kind of opportunity like that, where they've been thrown into a, a company or in a position that doesn't exist and have to form the position or the, the department. And, you know, you walk away with a lot of value. Mm-hmm. They don't teach that in school. So then you started your first company there. My first company was actually a lawn mowing company when I was okay. like 14. Okay. My dad made me start it. That's like a common thing too, right? The mm-hmm. lemonade stand or the lawn mowing yep. or snow shoveling. Mm-hmm. But I got like the neighbor kids to work for us. It was my first mm-hmm. like management experience. Mm-hmm. Had a little QuickBooks account maybe. No, <laughs> I didn't, uh, My dad did quick, what is it? He did something like QuickBooks. So he was like my yeah. accounting my accounting guy. That's cool. So you'd figure out P&Ls and Hi- all that. Hired the neighbors, learned that when I hired people, I lost all my money. Yeah, yeah paying them to sit while I work. You went from Family Link to Boom Startup from there? 
Um, so I was doing Family Link, and then I teamed up with John Richards at the Utah Angels. Mm-hmm. So that was like an early stage, um, like an angel investment group. Oh yeah, I see that. 2008, 2000. So you were there on the side for quite a uh, while. I was there on the side. I did that while I was in college. And then the 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 plan was that the Utah Angels had talked a lot about creating a sidecar fund. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where the angels will pull their money together. And then they invest out of one entity and they said, we need someone to manage this and run this. And then one day I woke up and I'm like, this is never actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to Silicon Valley with a friend and I wanted to just interview with VCs down there because I figured, well, this is kind of like the next step. Here's where my career has kind of taken me. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of liked that more than the marketing stuff at the time, being a founder. Yeah. And I stumbled across the plug and play tech center where I then learned about Y Combinator and Techstars. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I can't, I'm not going to be able to raise a $10 million fund. Mm-hmm. But at the time they were giving $15,000 to like 10 companies. So I'm like, I could raise hundred, you know, $150,000 plus a little bit extra for management. Mm-hmm. And then that could be like my startup mm-hmm. and I can start my fund. And at the time I saw myself as being like the next Gavin Christensen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to create a fund. Yeah. I'm going to have a track record and then we're going to go. But it turned out to be a mess in the end. Well, 150K is tough to, you know, get legs with. Right. So we were basically giving, the model was at the time, was you'd give fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars to ten companies, mm-hmm. and there were you know all pre you know pre revenue companies, mostly I did. But what it, what that fifteen k did is it gave people the confidence and the courage mm-hmm. to jump. And at the time that I would look at the day today, and I'm like, I would never take that deal. Totally. Y Combinator would now give you one hundred fifty thousand for seven percent. But at the time that was the market rate for a lot of these, yeah. you know, early you know, like ideas, you know, pre traction. Startups. Yeah, well, what did they do the valuation at like a fixed like half a million type number or something like that? No. So at the time, one of the partners there said, um, if you've got more than 2,000 lines of code, we're taking 7%. If you've got less than 2,000 lines of code, we're taking 10%, which so I think mostly was... mostly software then. Yeah, I think, but truly at Boom Startup, we didn't know fully what we were doing. That's interesting to do it based on lines of code. And that was just one of the partners. One yeah. partner went out of town. The other partner said, John, go ask the companies where they're at. And this is how we'll make our decision. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of uh, the value of a company based on how many lines of code they have. Yeah, I think there's... what if they're really short lines, you know? <laughs> oh, I mean, that was my point too, because I'm like, I can install a WordPress site and technically count that as 2,000 lines yeah, of code. Yeah, yeah. The pre-built stuff that's already embedded or the or like the chassis of the code that's already there. Mm-hmm. That's but I think funny. At, at the time, like looking back, it's easy to be critical. But at that time, those type of programs were still very wild, wild west. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember uh, even early on, I remember going to some boom startup events and then seeing some of the companies that were pitching at them. Uh, what was the, some of the other Utah ones that were similar to that? Like accelerator programs. I kind of fell out after I left boom startup at the end of the first year. Because that's Rob Coons, right? Yeah, Rob Coons and John right. Richards. Right, yeah, okay. I left at the end of the first year. Every year after that, a director like would bounce out because I think we all just had these visions. But yeah. just... I think one of like, if you talk about field notes, yeah. when you're picking founders, everyone's vision needs to be the same. Yeah. Like I remember John Richards, who I love, so don't take this the wrong way, but mm-hmm. he he kept making, the bigger reason why I, I bounced out was after we started the program, he's like, no one's ever going to take a salary here. No one's ever going to take a management fee as part of Boom Startup. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Boom Startup as being my startup. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how can I, how can I live as a founder right. if I can't take a, a standard management fee and, you know, I think he looked at it as being more of like a way to give back. Yeah. Perhaps. And at that point, I'm like, well, our well, incentives aren't aligning. They didn't need money like yourself at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were already had their exits. And, and I don't know what what their vision was, but my vision was, is like, I want to build the next Kickstart. Yeah. So you, and I you, at, you wanted to almost have a small venture capital fund that had the the accelerator mm-hmm. component tied to it. Yeah. You, you start at the bottom, you start yeah. getting traction, you work your web. And I'm like, Lucid, Lucidchart applied year one mm-hmm. and had Lucidchart been handled differently, they would have been part of the program. And and assuming Boom Startup never messed up loses a chart because it could yeah. have, mm-hmm. you know, that would have like totally changed my career in the VC space. Yeah, because then you would have gotten a solid return from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did Boom Startup have many of those hitters or like like good projects? Um, so I, I think they had a really was... good exit with Fora. But after the year Fora. one, I sold my shares back to John and Rob. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, I don't know what happened financially. Okay. Because I remember, I remember seeing like the company Simple Citizen going through it. Do you okay. remember them? Yeah, I know Simple Citizen. The citizenship. And I don't know if they did a deal with them, but 
Like, I think they did very well as a company. Yeah, Simple Citizen, I think, did really well. But I know, I mean, I know 4UP did really well. They were in round two. Yeah. But I very, I went offline pretty much after that. Yeah. Okay. I said, I'm going to go back to the founder role. The big ass part of it is I just, I hated, you know, kissing ass. I hated like, just like sucking up to these VCs. Yeah. Like, because I think at the time, I think my ego was really big. Mm-hmm. But you know, like you're, you're hanging him. out with people like like John Pastan, who's the founder of Omniture. Mm-hmm. And I think just to be in that space, you have to be very confident. Mm-hmm. But like I felt like I had to argue a lot to convince them of what it was. Like when we launched, when we launched Boom Startup, I gave the exclusive to uh TechCrunch mm. before a launch. And I remember one of the investors, I won't name, got mad at me and he said the Deseret, you know, newspaper was going to give us a front page article and you gave it to to uh TechCrunch. I mean, TechCrunch is pretty. It was big. huge. Like when they launched it, it, it was, was the way biggest. Hot back then, I mean, we got seven or eight thousand like website visitors that day. You know, the next day, mm-hmm. where when we finally got our front page color photo in the newspaper, there was no, you know, no noticeable difference no in traffic. Bump. Yeah, no bump. yeah, that's that's. I mean, those are all those things that like you live and you learn, mm-hmm. right? But it was like it was dealing with that. I feel like I yeah. felt like the internet age was changing a lot, mm-hmm. and that some of the people we were working with weren't very connected. Yeah, so that was your boom startup side. And then at the same time, you're also working with the Utah Angels on the side. And I'm mm-hmm. guessing, were you helping? I was running like, that in Silicon Slopes at the same time, like, too. Yeah, so so like, were you like lining up deals there and whatnot and kind of looking, deal sourcing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was deal sourcing, doing due diligence, running the meetings. Mm-hmm. But also the Utah Angels at the time, there's a life cycle to an angel investor. Mm-hmm. And so once they, you know, they they get it past a certain age. They recognize that every dollar they invest, they're not going to see. So unless they're investing yeah. for posterity reasons, mm-hmm. most select self select out. And I felt many of those individuals at that time either had burnt up their capital, didn't like the risk, or were of the age that they just knew they wouldn't get as many wins. And so the the group became very active, very yeah, inactive. W- yeah. One thing I remember is I, I went to the Park City Angels once. Uh-huh. Um, Much I, more active. Yeah, I feel like a lot of their money was from like biomedical stuff and real estate, mm-hmm. right? But Utah Angels seem to have a little more mixed with like more tech and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Is that what? Is that right? Yeah, and then a lot of the the VCs would like Paul Strom would come because he mm-hmm. did. He was at VSpring and Alta Ventures. Greg Warnock would show up from mm-hmm. Mercado. That's big, yeah. But they just they were they didn't have at that point an appetite for risk. Yeah, and very or if they were doing these angel deals. They would never come to the group and they would just do one-offs. Right. Which makes most sense. You know, I remember going to Park City Angels and then Salt Lake Angels. Yeah. The, most of the companies that were pitching, there were very early stage, mm-hmm. you know, or like pre-revenue or like uh, even at the conceptual stage versus, yeah, they're probably being reached out to directly if they have revenue-based companies like going seed or pre-seed, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's been crazy to see the valuation changes. Because at the time when companies would come, even if they had like some traction, the founders had quit, you know, the pre-money valuation would be like a million. And if it got to the two million number, these investors would freak out. Why is that? Just um, I think it just at that they point, just thought it was overvalued. Just overvalued. And now it's very common to see those same type of companies, the pre-money or post-money being five to ten million. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the world that I'm used to is all multiples AB, EBITDA, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like that's become more common in other spaces too because it's like hardware businesses, especially when I'm looking at like decks and P&Ls and stuff to do like my own small angel investing. It's like, yeah, it's, the way they value them is so different than like tech companies. So then when people come and they're like, this is my valuation, it's 4X the revenue I did last year or whatever. It's like, I don't know if that's how it works. If, you know, mm-hmm. so, or, or like I've seen people try to get a 10X their revenue on a hardware company. It's like, no, it's a completely different space. It's not yeah. a tech company. SaaS is different. I have <laughs> a lot so of respect different. for you guys in the hardware space because it's just so cash intensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your margins aren't that aren't as big. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, but it, but it also shows like, the their ability to operate a business by how healthy they keep their PL, you know, mm-hmm. month after month. And it's like um you you could just tell so much just looking at a PL, mm-hmm. you know, so quickly, uh, versus, you know, just top line revenue and basing mm-hmm. on that. Like I don't care about your revenue, I care about your EBITDA. Cause you could be a one million dollar business with a twenty percent EBITDA, or you could be a ten million dollar business with a four percent EBITDA. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it's just like yeah, it just 
different. But so then what did you do at Silicon Slopes? So, is this the same Silicon Slopes? Didn't it kind of like evolve or is it yeah, so, so this is the early stages of it? Silicon Slopes, in my mind, went through like three phases. Mm-hmm. There was the first phase when Josh James and Mark Adams was there and it was mm-hmm. mainly a website and the poster. And then Omniture got acquired by Adobe and Adobe was going to shut it down. And then John Richards comes back into the picture again because there was a uh, there was a, a online community called, I think it was BYU Island, where a bunch of developers were there. And he says, hey, and John Richards posted about it, said, does anyone want it? And I saw that as part of my portfolio. I'm like, here, I could have a media company. Mm-hmm. I could have Boom Startup. I've got the Utah Angels. I can give, that would give me a lot of exposure. So him and I then went to Adobe. We got Adobe to give us the asset for free, put it in a, in a Utah nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And then there was $29,000 left in the bank. We just had them, we convinced them to just give that because it was initially part of building the community anyways and donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started running with it. And then Josh James came on the board. He agreed to cover my salary as part of the sponsorship. And that yeah. was tricky. And maybe there's, if we look at founders notes, um, again, it's about inlining incentives with the people that you're working with. And Mark, Mark Adams before me, maybe I shouldn't say this, but he talked about Silicon Slopes being the redheaded stepchild mm. that Josh James had immense intentions for the, for it. But when, you know, push came to shove, it was always, it got pushed to the last, you know, the last item on the agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and the same thing happened with me. It's like that first year or two, because Josh James was on the board, I couldn't do things without him signing off. Mm-hmm. And then you were just like, you're just stuck in a position where you're powerless. And so one of the things that John Richards taught me that's very important to me today, with, even I've learned with all the clients we're with, is never take a position of, of leadership or responsibility unless you're given the tasks and the ability to accomplish those. Mm-hmm. And so then like, as an example, one of the clients we, we work with, we do a lot of their software development. We came to them and threatened to quit one day just because if they, if they don't give us the ability to leave, we're just going to burn their money and they're going to be upset in the long run. And that lesson has been super valuable throughout my entire career. It's you're there to deliver results mm-hmm. and you need to be enabled. And if someone's not going to enable you, you need to learn how to self-select out and eject. Yeah, that's great. We definitely put a lot of thought into these field notes for having it. That's great. I don't. I still don't understand how does Silicon Slopes make money now. So Silicon Slopes now. So there was another d- executive director after I left. Does Clint, runs off it just Clint sponsorships? Betts yeah, run, run Clint Betts it? runs it. I don't right. know what their what their PL looks like. He's a lot of cool stuff going on too with his. Um, CO.com. Yeah, CO.com. That's his new one. And then he has Beehive VC. Is that him as well? Um, He, I believe, is an an advisor there. But I'm not sure. I think it's a a limited advisor. Yeah. Because I, like, I've been down to the, I've seen their facility and stuff. They have a good podcast set up Mm -hmm. with their cameras and whatnot. You use Not as nice as this one. You don't think so? They have way better cameras, at least. They're smaller, though. Yeah. So. I mean, this is just my office with a couple cameras. This feels more comfortable with, with his. You're, you're sitting across this table right. that's really high. Yeah, I wanted to be like, you know, chill mm-hmm. and comfortable. And maybe that's your personality. Yeah. But it feels but, more chill than that room did. Yeah, I've always, like, I, I mean, obviously the big event they do every year is like mm-hmm. a big deal and that's well put together and it seems to continue to get bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, it's w- definitely more tech and SaaS focused, so I don't get too involved with it, but mm-hmm. I do like going and seeing some of the stuff they've got going on. And I'm, I'm guessing that's a revenue generator for them, I'm sure. Yeah, I think typically the media is what, if you look at like even like tech, TechCrunch. I'm assuming the media and all the ads that they display on the site mm-hmm. is kind of their break-even model, mm-hmm. and their profit all comes out of their large events that they can do. Yeah, so that makes sense. And then a lot of them seem to have other things on the side. Mm-hmm. People that work at Silicon Slopes, like Clint, obviously. And then uh, what's the uh, the Meat and Potatoes podcast? That's part of Silicon Slopes. That's what I thought. So that's like one of their. What's his name that runs that? Yeah, is it Garrett? I think it's Garrett, yeah. Because I remember Garrett was at Church and State mm-hmm. back in the day. That would have been similar time frame to when you were at like Boom Startup then. Yeah, so then it sounds it looks like from there you started your first business officially. Yeah, the first business... Pantheon. Pantheon Motion. We had three DBAs, Dental Motion, Chiropractic Motion, Veterinary Motion. We were... I was not smart enough at the time to understand true client pain points and revenue opportunities. Uh Uh, But what we were doing is one of the members of the Utah Angels, Kimball Weirig, was the founder of Dentrix. Mm -hmm. And he had talked often about it was time to create a Dentrix version in the cloud. 
And so my thought was, is, hey, if I can go sell to a bunch of these small practices, Mm -hmm. if I can get an iPad on the desk that we were doing a podium-like survey, it will show to investors I know how to sell to the space, that I can build a sales team, and then we can start integrating with their current applications, and then one day expand into the cloud and you know raise a few million dollars. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the the thought there. Um, we learned a lot from it. I think in the first year we did like a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand in revenue, but it was just so much work. And we learned that those like SMBs were just so hard and difficult to serve mm-hmm. that we then made a pivot into Tiny Torch. Okay, so that's like a spin out of that mm-hmm. then. Okay. Where we said Aurora at the at the point, it's kind of funny. We said what's working well and what's not working well, and I wasn't sharp enough at a founder at the time to realize that people's real pain point was online reviews. Mm-hmm. What we did is we pivoted to Tiny Torch, which was like a it was kind of like a Hootsuite, but we built a like a digital asset management tool behind it so that mm-hmm. the community could share and collaborate with posts and mm-hmm. and that got to about a million in revenue, and then Facebook killed it in response to the whole Cambridge Analytica stuff. Mm. So the but privacy now when stuff. you're building these, you're building the software side. You're, you're, are you a coder? Do you have coding background or the ability to code? Or is that when you started coding and doing software development in India? I'm more of a product owner. So when we were okay. doing Tiny Church, we had a US team mm-hmm. and someone, one of our sales reps, kind of like an outsourced sales rep said, hey, Mary Kay wants to be a customer. This is what they want but they need SOC 2 compliance. They need an iOS app. They need an Android app. Mm-hmm. And with our US team and the revenue we had at the time, which was like 10, 15,000 in revenue, there was just, there was no way we could go build out all these other aspects. Mm-hmm. And I felt that again, the angels in the state of Utah wouldn't fund the model. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if I went to India, I could self-fund. Brad Pace, one of my really good like friends and mentors, he had been working with a couple of different shops overseas. Mm-hmm. And so he says, hey, John, he'd, hit me up a few times because he says, if you can do this, you could expand and grow so much more so much more quickly. Right. And so... So you basically figured out what your, your current model is today on your own project. Mm-hmm. Which Correct. Is, which is, a, you know, I've seen that happen pretty often. It makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like what Scott did with uh, Vodo. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about that company? Oh, I know about Vodo. I mean... The app yeah, that he like made. Yeah, the photo app. So he made it where it's like you you post four pictures and people could vote on it. It's like Instagram style. But at the end of the day, what he learned from that was how to use, you know, small Instagram influencers to promote their app. Mm-hmm. And he was paying these like 15-year-old kids that had like, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. He'd pay them like a hundred bucks to post their app. I mean, you know, obviously today that landscape has changed. Um, and then that's when he actually spun out and started, shut down Bodo and started Instafluence and then sold that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, that's like being okay to pivot, which is like a common field note that everybody brings up. But it's like, sometimes when you're building your business, you see an opportunity because you're forced to use something or forced to do something a certain way that you actually find out is the business model that would work. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like what happened with Codebase, right? Yeah, I feel like that you're, if you're playing in the sandbox long enough, you either get lucky or you just like you learn as you go. Yeah. So you started Codebase early on as well, 2012. No, Codebase was 2018. Oh, like March of 2018. So what had happened is, um, I think in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, So our app was growing. We we landed Mary Kay as a client. As we were self funded, no venture funding at the time. We were doing about between thirty and forty thousand a month in revenue. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we've made it. If we can get to fifty to hundred thousand and then raise. You know, our our cap table will look very healthy. Mm-hmm. We'll have a, a much better business. And then one day, the whole app just turned off. Fa- we uh, had a, a huge reliance on Facebook. And Facebook, in response to the security issues around, around Cambridge Analytica, yeah. just turned off our business. We just crashed That's overnight. That's crazy. And then they published the blog post the next day. And I've always been frustrated still. It's that we, the issues at hand were security around your gender, mm-hmm. around political affiliation and your religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. And by design, we never touched any of those APIs. But hmm. Facebook came through and just shut everything down. At that point, I'm like, oh, crap, I'm like unemployed. Yeah. I had a lot of depression. Oh. I felt like as a, as a founder, I was, I was worthless, wasted last few you know, yeah. years of my life. Um, I had a buddy at Lucichart. And I was like, hey, like, can you get me a job here? And he looked at me, he's like, I don't know where to put you. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're not a sales, like you've done sales, but you're not a sales guy. You've done analytics, but you're not an analytics guy. You've done, pro- you're a product manager, but like that's not what you've done for the last eight years. This is who Luce is, hi- is hiring. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, and at that point for six months, I just kind of wandered around because I'm like, I don't know what to do with my life next. Yeah. So you're and like that's when Codebase a, was born. Like a limbo. Like shell shocks, probably more like it. Yeah. So then, and then you sh- basically were forced to shut down Tiny Torch then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a healthy business. It was growing yeah. well. But I think it's, it's critical flaw was, you know, it was reliant upon one third party business that we had no control over what they did or didn't do. Yeah. I mean, Facebook has done that. I've seen like our ad account have like, we post an ad of like someone's leg stepping onto one of our bath mats Mm -hmm. and it shows from like knee down or below the knee down, right? And then they shut the the whole ad account down saying it's like sexual, this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And it's like, um, what the hell? Like that's, that's like, 60% 60% of our revenue is right. relying your, on it. Your and revenue then, goes down, then you have to yeah. do layoffs. And we have to, well, we didn't, I mean, thankfully we would get it fixed. Some like, people did So didn't we get it fixed sp- in a scenario. couple of days, you know, th- but, you know, it's because, you know, we were spending enough with them that we had a, like enough mm-hmm. of an account representative that would actually do something for us instead of like mm-hmm. a robot that's like, you know, chit-chatting us on a, you know, but yeah, I just remember how scary that was. But you got lucky because there's, Several companies that have happened to, and they went under. Or you have to start over, right? You have it's to like recapture your data, rebuild your ad sets, and then let them relearn. Mm-hmm. And, you Nobody know, kills the business. If, if yeah, you're you were down for a couple momentum. days, if you had lost, if you could not run ads in that business for mm-hmm. fourteen to twenty eight days, it Maybe might have just screwed. killed the business. Yeah, it's it's miserable, and you can't solely rely on Google Ads. I think that's the big takeaway I've learned is that no matter what I do, I need to make sure that there's not a single point of failure. Yeah all the eggs in that basket, which is similar to why we're like, you know, doing Pinterest ads, you know, and we're looking at doing TikTok and growing that side of our ads more. Yeah. Diversifying our ad channels. Also, we use a mountain. Have you heard of that? Uh -uh. It's like basically like self-service commercial placement. Okay. TV commercials. And that's kind of been pretty interesting to experiment with as well. Okay. Yeah. It's like you, you have to diversify it. Um, so so yeah, then you start code base out of pretty much rage and depression for <laughs> what gave you that idea, and then how did that all get going? So that idea came from Derek Hall. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a VC, and then now he's a founder in Brazil, running a company. He's running two companies down there, and he's like, John, why don't you start a dev shop? Mm-hmm. And John Richards had always taught me that service based businesses were evil. Mm. Instant cash flow. What are you talking about? <laughs> I know. So at the time, like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. He's like, John, he's like, you have all these connections with India. Yeah. You can demonstrate you've had a need. People have come to you and asked for you to build their products and you've turned them down. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a service business. Um, not scalable. It's not it's like not, I mean, it, it's, it's scalable to a point, but it's the end of the day. It's like instant cash flow. It's instant cash flow. And so it's very po- sustainable. So at know? that point, um, my first two clients at Codebase were clients, were former clients of Tiny Torch. We had Jamberry. It was a, they did like yeah, nail wraps. I remember Jamberry. They yeah. were like, they were clients. So the- Utah company. Like the Jennifer Harmon, like the CMO was like the first person who took, a, you know, took a chance on us. And said, mm-hmm. hey, John, help us at the new company I'm with. Uh, Jared Richards came again, said, hey, we need to go build a team of like three or four people. Will you help us do that? Mm-hmm. And then we've just been running with them ever since. That's great. And you've just, you said you've had, you have like 40 team members over there or you've placed 40. We have about, we have roughly about 40 full-time equivalents. Yeah. And it's just, the model was interesting when you explained it, how you're basically helping companies domestically hire and position a resource in India for software development, Mm -hmm. which is smart because they manage them, right? Yeah. So they manage them and then I'll come through and I... I, I basically babysit both sides mm-hmm. and I make sure that they're doing best practices and procedures. And mm-hmm. I feel like when, when people mess up in India, there's a couple of reasons I feel like they mess up is I feel like they go too cheap. Mm. They're like, hey, we want to save money. So they go to the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of also things that outsourcing companies have done as tricks as time has gone on to make more money, mm-hmm. which has created a very negative experience. And so we've built a system to get, you know, to get rid of all of that. Mm-hmm. Is that a software platform that you've built? Not or? a software, just a policy. So like a lot of the the outsourcing companies that you work with that are US-based mm-hmm. actually just have a partnership or a, an affiliation or a relationship with an overseas group. Yeah. Whereas we have our own entity, so we control the entire you know supply chain the entire way through. So we can't have someone... 
twist us or pull a dev for, you know, last minute. Yeah. I think there's other things that we do that are just very different. Um, when I've outsourced, I've had a lot of people just swap devs on me last minute. Mm-hmm. Surprise. And you know what's happening. They're putting them on a more profitable project. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens a lot. Or they do a lot of this these tricks where they give you this average blended rate. So they'll give you a really senior dev and then a bunch of junior devs. And then they hope you can totally. blend together. And I'm a big believer. If we look at another like field note, Sackoats gave me this one. It's like, you pay for what you get or you get what you pay for. Yeah. And so when we've, we've done it, we're just trying to find really good individuals, mm-hmm. much more senior, mm-hmm. much more experienced. And that makes a very makes for a very different experience. Zacco's ovation. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Very cool guy. You need yeah. to have him on the podcast. I want to, yeah. He 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 uh I've had lunch with him before. He's super sharp. And ovation seems to be doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Is he a client then you're or he just you just know just friends. He was actually with me at Dental Motion. We call it Dental Mofo looking back on it. <laughs> That's good. What's the future of Cobase? Uh my goal is to grow it to a thousand, two thousand developers. Oh wow. Which is very doable. Mm-hmm. And you're more, are you starting to branch out of Utah for clientele? Do you have a good spread of clients outside of the state? Or Yeah, we've got clients. A lot of them are Utah-based, but they go as far as Missouri. Okay. Where so do you find them? Trade they usually, shows or... Historically, they've just found us. So as we've grown Codebase, and I've been... I go to India roughly on average, probably one out of every three months. Okay. And so people just see me there, and that's been kind of like our unique value prop. Yeah. They see me here. They see me there. It's like that with me in China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It helps where they're, they just see you as boots in the ground. So every, for, in most instances, every time I, I, I say, hey, I need to start putting on my sales hat, mm-hmm. the next referral comes in. I'll get three referrals, close one. And then my rule is never take more than one client every quarter. Okay. So you could really make sure quality control is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because your, your clients are more... Consistent cash flow and pretty long term. Mm-hmm. I look at it as code bases. Really, as I'm just building a perpetuity. Yeah, because so, yeah, because they're gonna like all software companies need development constantly to continue to mm-hmm. evolve and grow. So they're always gonna need that resource there for them. Yeah, and then build the relationship. All of our clients have been with us, except the ones that like went out of business. Like sometimes like, a company just can't get funding and they need more funding. Right. Outside of that, we haven't ever lost a client. That's great. What was the first time then you went to India and? started like tapping into that side of things. It was the, it was at January of 2017 is the first time. Yeah. So again, John Richards had made a comment from Dave Bateman that India only works if you've got boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, if I hire my first developer, I need to go to India. And so I was on the plane, you know, within 30 days. Okay. And then that first year I went to India about four times. And then I got to the point where I was spending roughly half my time in India and then half my time here. Okay. Well, and you and you met your wife out there as well, uh-huh. right? So you've got roots now in India, pretty much, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yep. She's from Agra. That's where the Taj Mahal is at. Cool. Is that where your office is nearby then? or No, we're on the other side of the country in Pune. So what would happen okay, is yeah. as I would go in and out of Pune, I would fly out of Mumbai mm-hmm. and my plane would fly right over her house. So one of these days, one of those days we just right swiped on Bumble and then... Oh, no way. We matched and then started dating. Bumble's big in, in India as well. I don't know how big it is or was, but that's how I found her. Well, that's cool. How That's a good story. Then how, how long ago did she move here with you? Um, she came here about two years. So she, her ideas, it was during COVID. She's like, it was her second time here. Then while she was here, we decided to get married. Yeah. She's then, hey, I'm going to stay. And then we applied for her green card. And then she got her green card in December. That's exciting. So then do, when you go back, does she go with you? And So she she's there family? on her first trip now. So yeah. I wanted her her to be able to go back and visit her friends and family. Yeah. And so we just blocked off like a two to three month window so she can just go and yeah. and rekindle those relationships. So how, so really in the U.S., you don't have any team members. For you? the most part, it's me and Gunjan that run it. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got David Haney out of Texas. He used to manage a team of 1,200 IT professionals. Wow. If you look at like another field note, no matter what I'm doing, I'm always trying to find someone who's at least 10 Who's who's done something ten times bigger than I'm doing? Yeah, and I tried try to find ways to suck them in so I don't make similar mistakes. One thing I always train, you know, management and team members when like they're hiring a resource, it's like don't be afraid to like hire up from you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Versus sometimes they're yeah, you know, like people's impl- like their egos get in the way and they hire someone lower in fear of what happens to their position or them, you know, position in the company when it's like. 
you know, it goes longer is one making smart decisions and loyalty mm-hmm. versus, you know, hiring someone lower to help make you look better or whatever. It's like, that doesn't even help the company versus find someone that might be more senior than you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, just a smart way to build and grow, you know, cause you're not only building out, you're building up, mm-hmm. but that's I cool. married up. So I was, that was, that helps too. Yeah. I, I think so. I did too as well. I think that's always smart. <laughs> we were playing a, a memory game once in Mumbai with our friends. I'm like, man, this girl has a much smarter memory recall than I do. Mm-hmm. I found that being, I was very impressed by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife is very analytical and very, she, she plans far ahead and she's very organized and type A and I'm definitely like not that. So mm-hmm. she balances me out. I'm too ADHD for that. That's good. My wife hates me because I'll look at all the opportunities on my plate and then I'll execute like last minute. Yeah. And I'm like, there's 20 opportunities. This is the best one now and then go where she, you know, so she's the one who wants to like plan and execute. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're doing like a, do you work mostly at nighttime then? I'm more of a, a, a nocturnal person. So like my favorite part is like, I'll like get up, do lunch meetings. I'll go home have like me time midday. And then like, I like to start, you know, clock in at like eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And then just connect and overlap. Well, you have less, I guess, I mean, you're communicating with your, the Mm -hmm. Indian side of things, but you're not getting bombarded with US conversations and whatnot. So that's my trick now. Most clients have morning calls. Uh And I used to be on all those calls until we hired a director of operations. Mm. And so now that I'm just selectively I try to be on a client call like once or twice a month just to like listen in. Is the tone right? Is the cadence right? Is there frustration? Are there gaps? And then if there are, then I fly in. That's usually how, like, I don't really go into client meetings unless there's like a fire or something or they feel Mm -hmm. like they need me to like push them to the finish line or something like that. But I do occasional checks. I think the, the, the call we had last night with the team is we're augmented with another team and it's been challenging because that team is not as technically advanced as my team. And so instinctively, their goal has been to just fight or not share information. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, I, I have, I've had to do a lot of coaching with the business owners and them because we need those individuals. We can't replace them. Mm-hmm. We don't want to replace them. But like they have to realize that their jobs are safe and that this is the new team dynamic and like what success is. And I remember the first time they were talking, they didn't know what a sprint was. And I went to the founder and I'm like, or the owner, and I'm like, they don't know what a sprint is. And I'm like, no, no, they have to know. Well, it turns out they didn't know. Mm. So and then it's teaching them on like those best practices and, yeah. and, and then so you're doing that discipline. Put it on your consulting hat there. Mm-hmm. Here's something that I've had to spend a lot of time at with my China office is, is understanding the the workplace culture and the differences between U.S. and then China, obviously. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. had to deal with the same thing in India. Like, what are some of those those big things that you've learned with dealing with, you know, Indian culture? Because one thing I I know with Chinese culture, there's very direct and they don't mean to offend people, and they'll, but they'll say something that will offend someone, but it's not, not intentional, for example. And, you know, it kind of takes time for you to like figure out like, oh, this is what they actually meant. And so what, like, what have you picked up on and what are the big things that you've learned that, you know, is a huge difference that affects day by day? Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge that people have with India is that Indians were trained under the British rule Mm -hmm. that it was better to say yes to like a British officer than to say no and not deliver. So if they said, hey, can you build this bridge in two years? Mm-hmm. If it would take three years, you don't say no, it's going to take three years. You would just say yes, and then you'd miss the deadlines. Mm. Uh, with India's younger generations, that's not nearly a problem as it was with the older generations. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we focus a lot internally is just proper communication, managing up, setting clear expectations is would be the probably the biggest difference with, with India. I know, I've never done this. I've wanted to take my developers and put them in a boxing ring and give them a pair of boxing gloves and have them hit me like, you know, the foreigner or the outsider to teach them that it's totally acceptable and to like rewire their brains that it's okay to push back. It's okay to, <laughs> to you're not challenging authority, but to like, to provide constructive feedback. Mm-hmm. So then what, do you pad timelines to prevent that ever then? Or feel like you have to pad timelines knowing that that could happen? With any, any software developer, you need to pad timelines for the things you don't know. Because unless you're doing something repetitive, like say Salesforce software development, that you're just doing mm-hmm. tasks again and again and again and again, 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, the innate the innate nature of software development is you're always doing something you've never done before. Mm-hmm. So it's learning proper communication or if the deadline's going to change, how do we communicate that? So like that's one of the things that David Haney did mm-hmm. uh, with our teams this last week is we took them through uh, seven habits of highly effective people mm-hmm. and specifically communicating and learning how to communicate up. Mm-hmm. Hey, the, the estimate was two months. Hey, we think it's three months. And these are the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And doing that early rather than late or surprising someone. Totally. Yeah, buying time is not as difficult as people think. Mm-hmm. Or like a client's not going to be as disappointed if you're taking two weeks, but the product is going to be the level they expect it to be at. Mm-hmm. You know, have you had instances then where it has been just massively late and you're like, damn, I should have done something sooner that caused you to like know or understand that part of their culture? Um, I don't think so because usually in that, in, you know, in the, especially in the early days, I was have very hands-on and now those team members are now teaching other team members. Mm-hmm. And so it's more of just the areas I get involved in now is not really with that, but just when clients don't know how to manage their own dev teams. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's two-week sprints. Here's yeah. your, and this is what we talked about with one of them. Are you doing the check-ins? You know, are you doing the, like the sprint planning together? Are they, you know, doing, you know, post-mortem for every sprint? Mm-hmm. Um, is each person clearly stating what their responsibility is and are they accepting it? So then if it does or doesn't happen, then they can be held accountable. And if they know they're accountable, then that changes output. So here's another thing that I'm curious about, because just like you, when you spend that much time in the other culture, you like really get to know it and you immerse yourself in it mm-hmm. and you you learn to respect different parts of it and kind of like embrace it. And, you know, I like to lean into it and, and do their lunch processes, their tea time and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And like, it's, you know, I enjoy it. What about like the in-office culture side of things? You know what I mean? Like, do you have an office there th- that they work at or is everybody pretty much remote? Right now people are remote and we're starting to push people back in. Yeah, because I'm curious, like, because think about my my office, the culture here is very laid back, you know, um, people like to be here. Mm -hmm. Like we we made the decision to come back when we could after the whole COVID stuff where in the reviews, like when we were checking with everybody, everybody's like, I want to be back in the office. I miss the collaboration. I miss being able to turn to the side and talk to so on and so forth. And, um, you know, like we're big on like the, the, you know, spending time on Friday lunches and, you know, celebrating birthdays, doing all that type of stuff. But it's like, I'm always curious. And and when my team from China was here visiting last time, like we exposed them to all that and it was just mind blowing to them Mm -hmm. where it was, you know, there, when I'm there, it's like, you know, everybody's head down, grinding it out. The interesting thing is like, for example, nap time every day at lunch, you know, it's like they, they, stay often till 7, 8 p.m. on That's like normal for them throughout the week, which, you know, here we are like at five o'clock, pretty much everybody leaves, which is like cool with me, like work-life balance. Like what are some of those things that you see over there just being drastically different? Like the fact that I come home back from lunch at my China off and everybody's lights are off and everybody's sleeping. And it's just like, <laughs> that's so different from what we experience here. I don't know. I feel like with Indian outsourcing, um, development. They've worked with so many U.S. clients that I don't think the shock is as big. I think the, the more cultural shock happens when they come here, and the, like the culture shock is people aren't honking all the time while they're driving, and yeah. the, the roads are smoother. And in India, if you're waiting in a line or a queue, no one does that. Mm. We're here, everyone does that. What do they do in lines then? Do they it's just, just plow to the front? <laughs> it's just this. I mean, I would just call it is organized chaos. It's like it's different when you're driving. You know, they don't really care if there's a red light. I mean, they do and they don't. It's more of in India, things go slower, but they're, you feel like you're constantly moving. We're here, you're moving fast, stopping at a light, waiting for two or three minutes. Yeah. Going again. How efficient is that actually? You know, where they're just, it's just constantly just a flow of traffic. You know, I've noticed like in one in Europe, like in Germany, I drove around quite a bit there and I just remembered like, there wasn't really stop and go traffic. Everybody kept moving at a 40 mile an hour pace mm-hmm. or whatever. And then, yeah, like here it is that everybody stops and goes. And in China, driving around or riding around, I haven't driven in China. I've just been in a passenger, but I would always notice like cars just like freaking pull out mm-hmm. and, you know, the, they'll basically just block you from going. And here in America, you'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, r- like rip on the horn and stuff. But 
no, they just like slow down, like let them in. Okay. Like, yeah, okay, let's pull out. So then, then you think when someone from China coming to the U.S. to drive and they go to pull out, you know, you know, everybody thinks, oh, they're such terrible drivers. But at the end of the day, that's how they drive in China. And I can't tell you, like, I was noticing, I just see no accidents over there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think since, out of all the times I've been there, there's only been one time that I've seen like a, a wreck after it happened. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, they're all over the place because mm-hmm. people are on their phones and whatnot. And it's just so... uh yeah, just it, I, I, that's one of those things that I like noticed that stood out to me quite a bit. I feel like India has more fender benders. So I've been in four or five like fender bender accidents. Just like b- bumping the yeah, person bumping, in front of them. Yeah. It puts a dimple in the bumper. But here it's like you get in, a, you know, get in an accident, your car's wrecked. Yeah, here they have way harder hitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody's going way too fast. So th- let's go through the summary of some of those field notes you have written down. Okay. The first one is like you pay for what you get or you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't Talk know. about that a bit. I just think so many people try to go cheap and they don't yeah. understand what's ha- what happens. Yeah. Or it's or like they don't understand the complexity of the process they're paying for, right? Or it's like today, um, one of the uh, clients' devs has a counter offer, mm-hmm. and the client says we can't pay that; that's too much. But if they don't, if they think about the amount of time and money to find a new dev, mm-hmm. to train that new dev, mm. you know, people are sometimes you know they they don't realize there's these other inherent costs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people think. I mean, people are the same way with product development and like engineer and they're like, oh, I just need to make a prototype. And it's like, well, you have to do the full design process and engineering and, you know, prototypes. You don't just make one and it works. You might have to make three or four before you get it dialed. And, you know, they, they're like, oh, I'll just have like my cousin do this or whatever. And then Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, at the end of the day, we've seen a lot of those, those situations where they have that mindset where they end up just coming back to us anyway and we have to start from scratch and do it mm-hmm. the right way from the beginning. Yeah, I see a lot of those. Someone will, they'll go the cheap route and then about 12 months later, they they show up fairly consistently. Yeah. And they're like, well, that didn't work out. So let's start over. It's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. It's like, hey, this is this is what you're gonna, what's going to happen. If you go this route, we support you, but this is what you're dealing with. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's the same with buying a product. If you're going to buy... The cheap product from Amazon is probably not going to last as long. Mm-hmm. And that's why a big thing with our company is we like, we prefer to build a higher quality, better product that is more intentional. So the consumer that buys it gets it and uses it for a very long time and it becomes, you know, something of quality versus making a high volume, cheap Amazon stuff, you know? So what other, what is the second one? Uh, the second one is as a leader, lead the team in setting really good goals. Mm hmm. I think a lot of times we don't we we don't put deadlines in and we hope things will happen when they happen. And as I look back in my career, that's one of the things I'd probably be more proactive about. If I could go back and mentor myself, mm-hmm. you know, what's the goal for this month or this quarter? How can we all get buy-in? How can we all execute? Mm-hmm. Instead of just kind of be like, well, here's my objectives. And when we get there, we get there. Yeah, like setting quarterly. We do quarterly KPIs. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, it makes it easier to track. We use Asana for project management, but it's like nice to go through a list of KPIs and objectives and just see clearly if it's like on track, not on track, or done. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's easy to gauge the health of your your execution. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you don't do that, and you just you just don't know mm-hmm. your performance, yeah, or your team's performance. So that's a good one. I think another thing is, and this is something we do really a lot at Codebase internally is I'm very ADD. I always want to try new things. Mm-hmm. And it's always, you know, write down, this is, I think, Napoleon's principle. It's write down everything you want to do. You think it's important. Identifying those top three. And then not only just start doing, the, only do those top three, literally cross everything out on your list. Mm-hmm. And because I think over the last year at Codebase, we've been building a management team. I've been learning how to delegate. Mm-hmm. I tend to say, where's the fire, the opportunity? And I tend not to get my personal things off the list. Mm-hmm. And so my our new goal is if it's important enough to start, it's important enough to finish. And it's and then it's okay to have, you know, sometimes downtime as, as long mm-hmm. as you, you're focused and you get those things done. Yeah, or you're, you're setting up like the timeline of when you're going to pick it back up or, mm-hmm. you know, when I complete this task, I'm going to pick this back up or whatever. Yeah, those are good things. Even personally, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, this is something that John Richards taught me once. 
it's you make or break your career between three and five on a Friday afternoon. So this is very employee focused. Yeah. But it's one of those mantras that's been with me my entire life. It's it's really easy to check out early mentally. Like you might still be there physically, but to check out. Definitely. It's always been, you know, it's that last, like I did track in high school and in college. Mm -hmm. And in track, it's like when you hit your deadline, you're still like sprinting towards the finish line. Yeah. You put everything in where I feel like in, in corporate life, we're like, hey, there's an hour before I go. How can I look busy versus how can I actually get stuff done? Mm -hmm. Well, and that makes the start of your, the following week better, mm -hmm. you know, because then you go and feel like, or and, and you, you could also like have a better weekend knowing that you've completed those tasks, right? So it's probably better just mindset wise mm -hmm. to do it that way. I think another one, it's, it's easier to chase busy work as a founder mm -hmm. versus really doing the hard tasks that are uncomfortable to do. Mm -hmm. Like what? Give me an example, which... What would you consider that? Um, what would be a good example? I mean, if you like, if you have to have a hard discussion with an employee, right? Sometimes it's easier to say, it's not important. I'm going to... It's like, when do you clean the house, right? Yeah. When you're in school, am I going to do my homework or clean the house? Oh, I'm going to clean clean the house. Mm -hmm. When really it's it's that hard task. And in business, there's hard tasks all the time. Yeah. Like do I want to do sales or do I want to go put a strategy guide together? Yeah. Do I want to go do 100 phone calls or follow up with these people? Mm-hmm. Or do I want to think about the next podcast we can launch? Yeah. It's really easy to get distracted and not really do those core critical things that make or break people. Yeah. And I feel like too, once you actually get started on any tasks and you, you just got to lean into that momentum, you know, which is, can be hard to do and just get to get it started. Cross the finish line. Yeah. Anything uh, you want to leave behind about the Venture Capital Podcast? You know, like how often do you launch episodes and where do they find it? So go to venturecapital.fm. The, the goal of the podcast is right now we're just going through like the top 200 most commonly asked questions. Okay. That's and then a good one. Peter and I face off and then we, we have our list of bullet points beforehand. And then it's about a 20 minute episode. So it'll be like, you know, what is, you know, how to get a job at a VC firm? Mm -hmm. um, what are current valuations for seed or pre-seed deals? Um, what should my growth rate be if I'm looking to fundraise? And then we're just we're going through those, trying to provide as much data, and then just trying to be as transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. When you're recording episodes like that, are you guys doing a good bit of research and like talking to people that are like have jobs at venture capital groups and stuff like that? Or are you just going off your own experiences? A lot of it's off of our own experience. Like we'll grab some research in advance, but a lot of it's you know, Peter Harris is always looking at deals. Mm -hmm. So we can say right now, um, these are the markdowns that are happening. So for example, founder startup valuations have taken a huge hit. And some of these companies are taking hits by like 90% wow. of their prior valuations. Even Stripe, that's a company that should go public, that has real revenue. They just raised $6.2 billion, or is it 6.5? $6.5 billion dollars. And their valuation was a 50% markdown from the prior race. Oh, wow. And did they announce why that was? Or just it's private just information access still. to capital. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they shared their actual growth rates. I imagine Stripe's still growing and, and doing great things. And they're a core part of like the internet, you know, payment structure. Mm -hmm. But just the valuations have just have just changed. Interest rates go up, valuations drop. Cash is less accessible, valuations drop. Yeah, and we're, like I'm applying for uh, a line of credit for inventory for Dry right now, and I'm, I haven't seen what the rates are going to be, but I'm curious to see what they're going to be like. I'm kind of nervous about it. What are you anticipating? I don't know. I mean, like a line of credit. I some of the ones that I looked at in the past were like one and a half or so. So I don't, I don't know where it's going to end up from there. Which is honestly not that bad because it's like mm -hmm. we tap into it for maybe like a month at a time for a PO and pay it off with the sales from the previous order anyway, because we try to keep it consistently stocked, but it'll, yeah, we'll see. So thanks for coming on and, you know. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, those are solid field notes. <laughs> it was stressful because I know you had just interviewed Kirk, Kirk Wiemet. Yeah. And he's much, you know, like if you're going to listen to an episode, listen to that episode. No, it's a good, I, well, I, I always, I get, I get so much out of these episodes and every single entrepreneur is so different. Cause they're going through different things like hearing and it's the good thing about chatting with you, which is cool is I don't get to talk to many other founders that have built something in another country and have to understand like the cultural side of things and, you know, like the travel and then, you know, mm -hmm. the time difference, like staying up late at night and stuff like that. Every single interview has something different or different 
piece of value. So, and you're a good interviewer. So, thank you. I appreciate it. I was nervous because I'm not. I don't generally feel view myself as a talker. Yeah. Well, and you have a podcast, so. But the podcast <laughs> is Peter talks, and I ask yeah. like twenty questions, yeah. and I'll give him a couple jabs. Yeah, that's fun. Though it's not me talking about VC for an yeah. hour. It's Peter talking and saying, "Hey, Peter." What about this point? So it's more fast paced. Mm-hmm. And then when you have guests on, how do those work? What, how do you do that style of interview? So or we've only tried that once. That's with Scott? With Scott Paul. Okay. So we did three episodes with him as a test. I want to start doing more of that because then you're coordinating three different schedules. My schedule, Peter's schedule, and totally. the guest schedule. Yeah. Well, that's great. So we'll post all the links and stuff for so people can go give it a listen and check it out. So... Awesome. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. All right. So that was a great episode. Thank you, John, for joining me in our conversation after our lunch. I'm glad that you were able to come up so soon and interview with me. It's always great to connect with other founders that have built service businesses, especially one that has built a service business that leverages skill sets from another country that has a different culture. It's always good to compare and, and understand what he's learned and what I have learned and figure out how we can do what we do better. Some very well thought out field notes. I appreciate the effort going into it. One thing that I definitely agree with, uh, which I have learned the hard way, is that every founder, partner, co-founder, they got to be on the same mindset, wavelength, ideally are pre-aligning themselves with their intentions before decisions happens and big changes happen or before you start diving into building and growing your business. Best way to do that, obviously, is with communication. But sometimes when you do communicate and figure that out, you realize that you're not in alignment and it's not worth um, moving forward together. Definitely a big one that applies to any type of business, whether it's a direct-to-consumer brand, it's a service business, it's a brick-and-mortar, whatever it is. Definitely do not limit yourself to a single point of failure. If that single point does collapse, then the rest of your stuff collapses. You got to figure out how to split that into as many points as you can. Totally agree with that. That's like, for example, with a direct-to-consumer brand, if you're relying on what ad channel, you got to focus on diversifying, especially if it's like meta, right? If you're only doing meta ads, you better quickly add Pinterest and YouTube and Google and you know, whatever other ad channels you could dip into uh, so you diversify. I like to do it with factories, for example, especially when a product's volume gets to a certain point. I like to diversify and have multiple suppliers that I could buy the same product through just to prevent if something happens to one of the factories, it collapses, whatever, or they end up burning you and you don't want to work with them anymore because of something they did. The fact that you could quickly switch over to another factory will prevent that from being a point of issue. So that applies in so many different ways in business. Very valuable field note. Definitely a big point, especially being in a service industry where we offer a pretty premium and expensive service. You do get what you pay for. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me with a project. You know, they we give them the quote, we tell how much it's going to cost. They say, "Oh, that's too expensive." They go and get scrappy and try to find another way to do it. And it's happened many times where they end up coming back to us because they're either piecemealing things together and the service offering's not quality, the management's not quality, the output is not what they expected because they're kind of doing shortcuts. And a lot of times it's just because of the not, the, the, not necessarily understanding the complexity of what they're doing and what they're outsourcing to you. At the end of the day, you do get what you pay for. And it's worth, depending on what you're doing, a lot of times it can be worth paying the premium for the service that you need or the product that you need, obviously. Higher quality products, obviously going to cost more, more money. Like these mic stands. I got cheap ones and they suck and I'm thinking about replacing them. They flop down and, you know, can't tell you how many times this happens. So, good example. When you're looking to bring someone on, to a new business, John recommends to find someone that is doing something 10 times bigger than them so they can learn from them. I agree with that. I mean, it's always valuable to hire up, especially if you can afford it. If you bring on someone that's extremely experienced or 
has done the rounds, a lot of times they're going to end up being worth the money of bringing on that more expensive resource in-house for if you're hiring, you know, for a high-end role. You know, they'll bring a lot of value to the business. You'll learn from them. They'll end up shaping how you approach things because they're going to have insight that they wouldn't have had. Or they've been at businesses that do things a way that works really well that you wouldn't see otherwise because maybe you didn't have that same exposure or you worked in smaller businesses or whatever that might be. I think it's definitely a good way to look at things when you're hiring is to try to hire up. And I like to train that to my team too when they're hiring team members. Instead of looking to hire someone underneath them that might not have as much experience, you know, maybe it is worth hiring someone that has that more experience so they can learn from them. And that makes you a better leader, I think, too, where you realize, you know what, I should hire that more experienced person and not feel threatened and let the ego go when making that decision. Because at the end of the day, that decision down the road will be more valuable for you and the company. Really good field note. That's a standard, I think, is when you're leading, set really good goals, put a lot of thought and effort to them and paint that path towards them. And then setting those deadlines and goals end up being beneficial for that positive growth. So, you know, not setting a goal that's way astronomical and big to where everybody fails, but also not setting it too small where you 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 hit it too easily and then you get lack, relaxed after the fact that you hit it. I think it's good to find a happy medium and figure out something that pushes people, but also at the same time, if they grind it out and push really hard that year, they're going to hit it and surpass it. But also if they don't quite hit it, there's still something to be celebrated because what they did get to was huge. Anyway, we hope you found these field notes valuable. We appreciate you listening and watching. As usual, check us out on all of the podcast streaming platforms, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the social media stuff. And of course, if you're working on a project and you're building a consumer product, please reach out to us, clugonics.com. We can help you design, engineer, prototype, and source good manufacturing to make that product successful. Thanks for checking us out. We'll see you next week. 